Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University in the UK, a centre for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at centreforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in December 2019 by Dr. Anna Rowlands, St. Hilda Associate Professor of Catholic Social Thought and Practice here at the Centre for Catholic Studies. It was presented as part of the USA Lecture Series and is entitled Pope Pius XII's Christmas Messages, a Dialogue in Mid-Century Catholic Social Thought. Thank you, Karen and uh, the CCS and the Usher Lecture hosts for inviting me to give um, the Christmas uh, lecture this year. I did warn Karen when she asked me would I do the Christmas lecture that I work on endless topics that relate to misery and trauma in different ways. So I don't really work on anything very festive. So the only thing I could think of that I work on that has any festive connection are Pius XII's Christmas messages. But they are, of course, wartime Christmas messages in the context of the Holocaust as well. So just to give you fair warning that even my festive twist involves an element of difficulty uh, and, uh, and of trauma, I'm afraid. So someone asked me quizzically, having seen the advert for this lecture, whether I intended to analyse the personal Christmas greetings sent by Pius XII. That's not quite what I'll be doing this evening. The Christmas messages referred to in the title of this lecture are, in fact, the well-known papal public messages issued by Pius XII during the course of the Second World War. In fact, Pius issued 19 Christmas messages during his pontificate between 1939 and 1957, and two in particular that garnered particular attention during the war years, those of 1942 and 1944. And it's these wartime messages from 39 to 44 that I will draw on with a particular emphasis on the messages of 1942 and 44. Now, my wider growing fascination, which is in its early stages, and I'm aware that there are historians in this room who may well, uh, you may well think by the end should have been giving this lecture instead of me, but my, my ongoing uh, and growing fascination at the moment is with a genre of mid-century Christian social writing. So it's Christian social writings from the mid-1930s until the end of the 1940s. And I'm fascinated by the fact that these writings are really quite distinctive in my view, and they're distinctive partly because they form an intellectual basis for what happens after the war, but also they are partly a road not taken that we're returning to now to seek a new kind of renewal. And I'm interested and also disturbed by the fact that some of these writings that I'm going to be talking about this evening have been picked up by contemporary populist movements, um, including in France um, and in Italy um, and elsewhere. And I think we need to reclaim these sources um, out of the hands of those who would use them in a narrow way as part of the politics of friend and enemy. So I want to situate the Christmas messages this evening backwards in the world that's inherited from the early 1930s and the papal predecessor of Pius XII, and I want to situate them forward slightly into this milieu of what I'll be calling confusingly modernist Catholic social teaching. Now, this is nothing to do with Catholic modernism um, as it's often referred to. What I really mean is the moment when the Catholic Church accepts that it's part of a distinctively modern world, with a separation between church and state, with an active role for a Christian laity in a political order which is liberal and democratic. 
Before I begin, I also want to offer a necessary note on what I'm not doing this evening. Pius XII has become a figure of some significant historical controversy. Hitler's Pope, in the, in the phrase of one commentator, and for others, a figure to be rescued and placed in the realm of sanctity. I've no wish to dismiss the importance of the historical questions concerning the knowledge that the Vatican had of atrocities committed against the Jews and the silence concerning what was known and a failure to be self-reflective about that after the war. There are serious omissions in the Christmas messages with regards to the specific suffering of the Jews and I'm not academically qualified to add anything new to the historical discussion of those questions. What I am doing this evening is treating the messages in the light of developments specifically in social teaching. This cannot be done without some comment on the Holocaust, but it's not my main focus this evening. So to begin the lecture proper. Um, the, by the way, you should have a handout, and the handout has a series of quotes, so any time I'm quoting anything that's more than a couple of phrases, um, you've got a handout available. So the first couple of quotes that I'm opening the lecture with are on your handout. If one wishes to return to the great principles of justice that lead to peace, one must go to Bethlehem. Let us go back there, close to the crib of sincerity, of truth and of love. There, the only begotten Son of God gives himself as man to men in order that humanity may know him again in him, its bond and its peace. Popes issuing Christmas messages is not headline news. Rather, what makes Pius's contribution to this genre of writing significant is his focus on the social and political dimensions of the crib of Bethlehem. Unlike his immediate predecessors, Pius XI and Leo XIII, and successors, Pius XII did not issue a social encyclical or an apostolic exhortation on social teaching. For this reason, he is often wrongly, I think, overlooked as a source for developing social teaching. I will argue this evening that this is a problematic oversight because Pius's Christmas messages are in fact deeply theological, deeply political, and they are ecclesially important documents. They are both distinct within the papal CST genre, and they represent an important moment in Catholic social modernist responses to a world in crisis. They are important for what they include, as well as what they omit. They are as important for the possibilities that they open up for a later post-war Catholic world, and for the fissures and divisions with which Catholic social modernism continues to live in the current day. Within the space of 18 days, in the spring of 1937, Pius XI, Pius XII's predecessor, had issued three letters to a world in turmoil. The first letter, issued on the 10th of March, was written in secret and smuggled from Rome into the heart of Nazi Germany. Mit Brennender Sorge, with burning concern, was the title of the letter, and it was to be read from the pulpit of every German Catholic church on Palm Sunday. The letter reversed the earlier attempt, which many had warned was ill-conceived, to form a treaty with Hitler in the hope of protecting the rights of the German church. Explaining his change of stance, the text 
denounced the appeal of the Nazis to a false form of order. It denounced the dark, impersonal destiny that appeared to lie at the heart of National Socialism and the exaltation or divination of race, the people or the state, quote, above a standard value. It's very distinctive uh, phrasing. Pius, alarmed at the Nazi denial of the personal dimensions to justice, wrote, Our God is the personal God, supernatural, omnipotent, infinitely perfect, one in the trinity of persons, tri-personal in the unity of divine essence. Divini Redemptoris issued just a week later the only Pope who makes me think that Francis might be underperforming in terms of issuing social statements. Divini Redemptoris, issued just a week later, was intended for a rather different audience, and one that the Catholic Church had perhaps been more consistent in criticising. Written as a condemnation of atheistic communism, the text outlines the objection of the Church to Bolshevism's suppression of individual natural rights. Rejecting both liberal individualism and atheistic communism, Pius called for what he calls a Christian civic humanism as the route to a social order that is able to respect individual self-determination, brought about, quote, by means of an organic union with society and by mutual collaboration. The final of these three letters was issued on the 28th of March, and was addressed to the bishops, priests, and laity of Mexico. Following the deaths of around 5,000 priests and Catholic laity and the exile of many more, Pius wrote to the Catholics of Mexico to set out his condemnation of their persecution and to outline a set of principles that could be drawn upon to inspire legitimate resistance to the regime. He argued that Catholics had a right and a duty to take their inspiration from the imitation of Jesus Christ, to be inspired by the call to a life of prayer, of sacrifice, and of love. Such an imitation and pattern of life would naturally produce a form of social renewal, he thought, a form of Christian citizenship focused on the needs of the poorest and resistance to all forms of injustice including the injustice that refuses the right to religious expression and to religious education. During the course of the mid and late 1930s, Pius XI had written on a dizzying range of social challenges. He'd written on nativism in Germany and France, on anti-Semitism in Europe and North America, on economic injustice, on migration and on religious persecution. Yet what connects these three letters is not only a common set of social issues besetting the 1930s and with some alarming contemporary resonance now, but also the papal attempt to address the presence of what were considered to be rival pseudo-theological ideas that dominated the public sphere. Each of the letters from the spring of 1937 attempts to name these distorted, secular political theologies with their false projected images of Christianity, their false gods, and to set out in response a Christian story of human nature and social renewal. 
Pius was clear that the draw to Nazism and Bolshevism was not merely economic or social, but there was something of a kind of theological pull at the heart of it. So Brennan de Sorge did not name or denounce Hitler personally, but it did make clear that Nazism sought to replace God with man and to deify a particular leader, a particular race, and a particular nation. In each of the letters of 1937, Pius outlines the theological failures of political movements that he views as more than merely economic or social settlements. In fact, the papacy makes clear that no social contract is ever a mere economic or social settlement. He viewed both Nazism and Bolshevism as determined anti-theologies, determined to erase the personal Trinitarian God of Christianity and to propose instead to its people a false messianism, a deceptive mysticism. These movements were viewed as rival theologies, not secular versus religious, but rival theologies, producing and trading in their own idols and putting to use their own versions of classical narratives of sin, purity, sacrifice and redemption. So nothing on offer in the politics of the 1930s lacks its own version of those narratives of sin, purity, sacrifice and redemption, but they're not orthodox Christian versions of those. The political messianism of, totalitarian, of totalitarianism was for the modern papacy but one form of modern pseudo-theology. So Pius XII arrives as a very different style of pope, diplomatic and cautious. The flurry of earlier texts from his predecessor and the analysis shifts into a different tone and a different practice. One further piece of scene setting helps us to approach the texts of the Christmas messages. James Chappelle, an American historian of Catholicism writing now, argues cogently in his recent book that the real moment of generative change in 20th century Catholic social ideas, lay and clerical, was the 1930s. Chappelle argues that it's during the 30s that the church moved from a largely anti-modern position through the development of two rival Catholic positions, both of which are formed crucially in reaction to totalitarianism. The first of these movements he names fraternal modernism. Fraternal modernism was unified primarily by its opposition to fascism and focused on rejecting nativism, racism, and it tended to be egalitarian paving the way for post-war Catholic embraces of democracy, of human dignity, and of human rights. The second movement he names paternal modernism, so fraternal modernism and paternal modernism. This strand was unified primarily by its fear and rejection, less of fascism and more of communism and the left. It focused on family, freedom, rights, and it remained strongly hierarchical in its ethics. This was the basis for a strand of more socially conservative Christian democracy after the war. Chappelle offers the rather compelling counterexamples to illustrate these two strands of the Senegalese Catholic poet and politician Leopold Senghor, writing in Esprit Journal in the late 1940s, arguing that Germany had been defeated, but Nazism had not. 
that the fascist spirit lived on and that its threat would continue to be felt in any appeal to a combination of high capitalism married to strident nationalist narratives of the nation state. So wherever you were to find an appeal jointly to a high capitalism and a high form of nationalism, that's where you should worry that the spirit of fascism was still alive and that had not been defeated by the war. So a Catholic fraternal tradition, Leopold argued, must root out and oppose every instance of this fusion of capitalism and nationalism. By contrast, so that's the fraternal tradition, by contrast, the German political figure Heinrich von Bretano speaking to a stadium of 60,000 Christians. I don't know where you'd have to go now to speak to a stadium of 60,000 Christians, but anyway, you could still do that in the early 1950s, apparently. So speaking to a stadium of 60,000 Christians not long after, notes that the true threat to a Christian social spirit is found in communism. And the necessary Christian response was to build strong national cultures married to strong military structures. Chappelle maps the ways in which these two Catholic modernist options, social modernist options, developed into two distinct post-war legacies, with moments in the 50s and 60s where there is integration and collaboration between these two movements that I think now increased polarisation in our times of culture war in the churches once again. In this context, Chappelle reads Pius XII's messages as aligned with the development of that second paternal Catholic tradition. They can be seen as supporting a new Catholic language of rights, of statism, and of pluralism, but they do so within a hierarchical and paternal worldview. Pius XII's 19 Christmas messages cover the following repeated social themes, peace, the order of states, human rights, community, dignity, security, liberty, and the correct use of technology. Delivered as radio addresses, they reach their audience as oral teaching, gradually building a story of a hoped-for world beyond the war. To the anger and bewilderment of critics, Pius XII dwelt relatively little on the content of the suffering of the war and for some fail to denounce strongly enough or to diagnose sufficiently um, the Holocaust. Pius believed that there was a deep desire for a new social order, that there was a kind of common cause to be made between Catholics who already for many decades into the early 20th century had felt what Chappelle calls, quote, a sense of temporal dislocation in the move into a modernist world and a more general moment of cultural, social and spiritual crisis that was unavoidable. So to put that slightly more simply because that was an overly long sentence, I think the Pope thinks that the contribution he can make to a post-war world is less to dwell on the suffering of the war circumstances around him and more to speak into the hope of reconstruction after the war and that he senses that there's this connection, a kind of spiritual connection between the temporal dislocation, a sense of feeling out of place in a modern world for many Catholics and the sense that something was collapsing of a world order and that those, that moment of a broader cultural meeting with a sense of Catholic dislocation in fact could lead him to say something significant into that space and that's how he uses the messages. The central theological focus of the messages by dint of the medium chosen becomes the child of Bethlehem and the relation between to use his rather striking and I think beautiful phrase, the wood of the cradle 
and the wood of the cross. And an evolving vision of peace, of justice and of human dignity that emerges in this meditative, almost mystical space. In 1939, Pius speaks of five conditions necessary for a just peace. He names these as, first of all, equality of rights, secondly, disarmament, thirdly, the reorganization of international life with new international institutions, the need for a new organization within states to protect minorities. There's some really interesting recognition in Pius's messages of the difference between, even the tension between nations, the nation state, and peoples in the plural who make up the nation. This becomes an interesting reoccurring theme across his messages, that the nation doesn't always protect its peoples. Finally, he insists on the need for recognition of a transcendent divine law that enables the pursuit of moral justice and sustains it. In later messages, Pius adds, so that's in the 1939 message, in later messages, Pius adds three principles for the realization of those principles of the just peace. First of all, the necessity for collaboration, and he talks about the need for deep collaboration, not just mutual coexistence. Secondly, honesty, and thirdly, the total eradication of the totalitarian state. In 1940, he builds on this vision from the year before, arguing that a new world order must be based on a deep and true victory. So he takes up this theme of victory and what victory would mean. This victory is characterized by victory over hatred that divides peoples and nations. Victory over distrust which paralyzes and, pre and prevents creative overcoming. Victory over utility. Again, this is a really interesting theme that reoccurs through this phase of teaching. So victory over utility as what he calls the dismal principle of society, where people and institutions are viewed as no more than function. A victory over an economy of inequality. And finally, victory over egotism, and the will to power that drives dark forces in politics. No contemporary resonance at all. He denounces in another striking phrase, quote, the tournament of insincerity in public life. I'll leave that to hang. <laughs> Pius is clear that the dangers to peace come from all forms of totalitarian and nationalistic states from a politics of what he calls mere coexistence rather than active collaboration and deep solidarity. And that this politics of mere coexistence can poison common life, poison the common life within nations as well as between states. From false economies that place capital before labor and from a politics of indifference. So Pope Francis has talked a lot about a politics of indifference, and I found this phrase used repeatedly by Pius XII as well, he directly uses this phrase, a politics of indifference. He talks of the necessity of an active Christian will for peace. In his 1942 message, Pius furthers his insistence on a deep relationship between the internal governance of states and respect for minorities and integral harmony in economy and society. So he repeats this theme again and again, that there's a relationship between the internal relationships 
and justice within a nation state and what's happening in the international order. You cannot have a just international order if you lack the conditions for what he calls integral peace within a nation. And that's about justice in the economy. It's about social cohesion. It's about the respect for minorities. It's about functional institutions at every level. So this distinctive emphasis on integral peace within nations is a hallmark of his social teaching. Again, it's an interesting challenge to think about integral peace in our own times. In this context, Pius lays out two fundamental elements of moral need that he thinks human souls have within a political community. He thinks that we have deep human moral needs for good order and for what he calls tranquility. These are things to which the human soul tends naturally, they're deep desires, but these desires for good order and for tranquility are open to profound distortion in their desire for recognition. Pius's 1942 Christmas message is, I think, the most substantial offering of the five-year cycle of messages. In it, he sets out a list of conditions for a new world order. He names these as recognition of the dignity of the person, the content of this dignity relates to an intrinsic set of rights, which are rights to have a family life and a right to marriage, a right to decent work, a right to worship, and a right, interestingly, to carry out religious acts of charity, a right to work and to have access to and use of material goods to support a decent life. Pius repeats the teaching on the dignity of labor from previous encyclicals, and given the wartime context, he emphasizes the need for a restoration of juridical order, of good legal order and fair legal process. He concludes with a vision of a Christian state. This is not an appeal for a government in conformity to the church, but rather the beginnings of a new pluralist vision that remains theological but resists relativism. Pius lays out a brief vision of Christian citizenship that requires of the Christian a form of social action focused on protecting order, protecting public kindness, protecting the just distribution of goods, and seeking the good of the city. In doing so, I think he prefigures in ways we've not fully recognized the lay political theologies of Vatican II. Key to and distinctive to Pius' social teaching during the war is a repeated articulation of the conditions for social unity. We have a defense of the idea of taking in and receiving the social whole, a resistance to the idea of impersonal individualism that tends towards a mass culture of indifference and pulls away from social responsibility and from the dignified treatment of the person. These are all obviously resonant themes in Pope Francis's own recent teaching. That inequity in the distribution of goods and the oppression of minorities causes an integral violence to the social body that threatens internal harmony. What you do to one marginalized group, you do to the whole body by way of an act of violence. In one sense, Pius can be read as an organic thinker in line with pre-Vatican II social teaching, but in another, I think something really distinctive and more interesting is going on here. The second most substantial statement comes at the end of the war, at Christmas 1944. Here Pius extends the tentative exploration of Christian citizenship 
and talks about a vision of post-war democratic culture. So in this message in 44, he's focusing on the Catholic theory of democracy. He reminds his hearers that there is no opposition to democracy in Catholic teaching, but neither is there any formal preference for a particular individual system of government. Nonetheless, he wonders whether there is a collective cry from the peoples who have endured war for limited forms of government, answerable to the people, with respect for both limit and also the dignity of the person. How, what, how then, he asks, might the church contribute to developing a healthy account of democracy? The vision of healthy democracy that Pius lays out, he distinguishes between unhealthy democracy and healthy democracy, has to my mind two features that are worthy of comment this evening. The first is the cautious Catholic working out of a vision of democracy that is less about autonomous individuals existing free from interference and merely brokering common interest and more a vision of the person as a communicating social whole. This democratic vision of the communicating social whole and the person within it is marked by a deepening consciousness of individual personality and of freedom to achieve active goods, an active resistance to unnatural inequities, for example, of respect and of the distribution for goods, and a necessary limit that forces a state to hear the individual and their yearnings before compelling any obedience in the name of the state. Pius talks about this as the life of a people rather than a nation, defining a healthy democracy as an organic and an organised unity of peoples. This affirmation leads him to then name its contrast, a false democracy or a tyranny. Such a society is characterised by a mere mechanical bringing together of a shapeless mass of individuals, the masses, the faceless, the inert, to be more acted upon than acting. It's worth pausing to read two extracts that are on your handout that note this contrast between healthy and unhealthy democracy from the 1944 message. The first one reads, the people lives and moves by its own life energy. The masses are inert of themselves and can only be moved from the outside. The people lives by the fullness of life and in the men that compose it, each of whom at his own proper place and in his own way, so that's still the hierarchical thinking, is a person conscious of his own responsibility and of his own views. The masses, on the contrary, wait for the impulse from the outside, an easy plaything in the hands of anyone who exploits their instincts and impressions, ready to follow in turn, today this way, tomorrow, another. He continues, this elementary power of the masses, deftly managed and employed, the state can also utilise. In the ambiguous hands of one or of several who have been artificially brought together for selfish aims, the state itself, with the support of the masses, reduced to the minimum status of mere machine, can impose its whims on the better part of a real people. The common interest remains seriously and for a long time injured by this process 
and the injury is very often hard to heal. The masses are the capital enemy of true democracy and its ideal of liberty and equality. This vision is not yet the equitable and non-hierarchical vision of Vatican II. Pius still notes that there can be natural forms of inequality and hierarchy, these relating to giftedness and social function and standing, and he's repeating a long uh, Thomist um, social tradition, neo-Thomist social tradition. And the language does remain paternalistic, but this is not entirely the language of his predecessors. In most accounts that tie Pius to later developments and in recent revived interest, commentators tend to move from the world of the Christian social messages into the post-war world of Christian democratic politics. So one of the things that's often done is there's a leap in current commentaries for retrieving Pius XII's Christmas messages and their focus particularly on dignity and showing the way that the principle of dignity was written into post-war constitutions in Germany and elsewhere and showing how they influenced the development of the background to international human rights norms um, at the end of the 40s and into the 50s. So the tendency and also the formation of Christian democratic parties, the tendency is to leap forward and to drag Pius's material quickly into this reconstructed post-war world world. But I want in the final section this evening to pause a little, not to rush on to the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. I want us to linger a little longer in the world of the 40s and to hear the resonance of themes between Pius and two other overlooked lay wartime thinkers, Simone Weil and Josef Pieper. I will pause only long enough this evening to note some brief resonant features of their work features that are overlooked and forgotten in the post-war moment. I think they echo Pius' concerns in two fascinating ways. On the need for a fundamental renegotiation of the social contract and on the importance of articulating a set of similarly familiar moral needs. A need, first of all, for rootedness, for relationship, for social communion, and for relationships that resist the banality of utility, the banality of function. They articulate a similar, although not identical, way of paying attention to the world and to loving it. The first of my figures is the Jewish Christian philosopher Simone Weil. Weil died at the age of 34 in London at the end of the war. She had been living in London as a French Jewish refugee who had been drawn for over a decade to Christianity. She died shortly after completing a manifesto for the rebuilding of France after the war, which had been commissioned by the Free French, which she entitled The Need for Roots. They rejected it afterwards as being too religious. As the title of the book, written just after Pius' 1942 message, articulates... They believed in a basic human need for rootedness. And there's a quote, a fairly lengthy quote on your handout. She writes, quote, To be rooted is perhaps the most important and least recognized need of the human soul. It is one of the hardest to define. A human being has roots by virtue of his real, active, and natural participation in the life of a community which preserves in living shape certain particular expectations for the future. This participation is a natural one in the sense that it is automatically brought about by place, 
conditions of birth, profession, and social surroundings. Every human being needs to have multiple roots. It is necessary for him to draw well nigh the whole of his moral, intellectual, and spiritual life by way of the environment of which he forms a natural part. They is clear that reciprocal human exchanges, the everyday relationships that fill the natural environs in which we live, are as important in shaping rootedness as any narrow physical sense of place. The problem, they thinks, is that most of our current mode of social organisation pulls away from this deep need for rootedness. Western politics and economic life in the 20th century, she believes, have, have pursued policies that deliberately uproot people. Our fundamental economic and political model, she says, uproots, and the distribution of power itself uproots. And so she contrasts rootedness as that for which we long with uprootedness, which she thinks is our universal modern experience. And there's a second quote on your handout. Uprootedness is by far the most dangerous malady to which human societies are exposed because it is a self-propagating one. For people who are really uprooted, there remain only two possible sorts of behavior either to fall into a spiritual lethargy resembling death, and she gives the example of slaves in ancient Rome, or to hurl themselves into some form of activity necessarily designed to uproot, often by the most violent methods, those who are not yet uprooted or only partly so. So you either end up with a kind of lethargy that's like death, a kind of passivity of the soul, or you end up actively uprooting other people. Just to be clear, they is talking about a spiritual, political, economic condition of uprootedness deep in the modern psyche, which exists in visible structural forms through work, through governance, through markets, and through the flow of capital. They believe that uprooted cultures are prone to spiritual crises, and that uprootedness does not produce the conditions for thinking well in order to get us out of such crises. So the more we're uprooted, the less well we think about our own condition. They comes to the view, sorry, they comes to view the moments when we manage to think well under such chronic pressure as near miraculous. These are the rare moments when we can break the cycle, even for a moment. These eruptions of love, hospitality due to the enemy and true attention given to the other are possible but they are not inevitable. They come about, she says, when the soul is willing to be truly attentive, to allow itself to apprehend reality, to take it in, to be moved by it, to take it on as one's own. Such moments, often fleeting and very difficult to sustain, stand as proxy moments, witnesses to a wider justice that is still denied, noted and notable in its absence. These breakthrough moments, these miraculous moments, beg the question, or rather hold open and hold up the question of justice that remains absent. They views the human being as the only truly eternal thing in the social order. 
Collectivities, therefore, serve the human person like food does the body. Societies either poison or nourish human beings in their relationship with each other and in the pursuit of their eternal destiny. She proposes, therefore, a theory of human obligations rather than human rights. She's not against human rights, by the way. She thinks that rights are fragile and contextual and that they need to be grounded in something prior, and those prior things are obligations. She proposes that regardless of context or condition, we bear obligations towards the human person as such, and these obligations relate in turn to specific needs that every human person has. She names these needs as material and moral. And interestingly, she thinks we have a tendency to focus more on material needs and to forget about our moral needs. Responding well to both material and moral needs is part of what reroutes us when we're uprooted. Her list of these needs is challenging. The obvious material ones for food, shelter and decent work are there. But the moral needs, she makes clear, are less self-evident. The need for truth. The need to have access to truth, to pursue it, to find our relation to it, which she sees as the most sacred need of the person. The need for order, even for some hierarchy. The need for both risk and security. The need for responsibility. The need for liberty and equality. The need for private property, but also for collective property. The need for healthy relations of obedience. A society that plays fast and loose with political truth or these wider moral needs, according to they, is an uprooting society. The need for roots is a dazzlingly distinctive text. It is a complex, valian work, and yet there is a remarkable affinity between Pius's Christmas messages and her vision. Vey is much more suspicious of institutions, of the organised church, of the lure of false ideologies of solidarity than Pius is, who remains perhaps unsurprisingly confident about church institutions. But nonetheless, these works speak to each other, and to their moment in fascinating ways. Several years after Vey had finished the need for roots and died unbearably young in a severe act of solidarity with the suffering French community resisting Nazism, a young German academic named Josef Pieper was articulating his own Christian social vision. Writing in 1947, Pieper laid out the following claims for a vision of the common good fit for a post-war world, resonant, I think, with Pius and with they. Pieper lays out a vision of the common good in which he distinguishes between a liberal tendency to define the common good primarily in terms of what he calls, quote, the usable goods of production. Pieper says that a theological account of the good forces us to look at both the material goods that are part of the life of necessity, food, shelter, work, education, leisure, that they and Pius have also been concerned to note. Yet he says we must look also at the goods that are neither usable nor marketable the ones that we can't think of as just function and that we can't buy and sell, but which are entirely real and indispensable to a good life together. These non-utile, non-marketable goods are the relations of care and love, of contemplation and beauty that make our lives together and sustain life. 
These goods represent the basis of a free life together beyond mere supply and demand, all the things that Pieper calls the total world of work. It is vital to the common good that we protect the forms of social relation that cannot simply be put to use. But Pieper adds an interesting nuance to Pius's theme of political limit necessary in a healthy society. He notes that while we can certainly list basic material goods to which we all need fair access and the problems that occur when we don't have those, what we cannot do so easily is define with any certainty or finality what the total common good should look like. In fact, Pieper goes further and argues that we should be very suspicious of any form of government that thinks it can define beyond doubt the total common good that can tell us the ultimate horizon of the good. Any form of what he calls an echoed in pious political messianism that tells us there's a final vision, that tells us there's an end to the necessarily open-ended conversation of what the good might be, revisable at every turn, is to be suspected as the imposition of a total view of society. There is a necessary not knowing for Pieper, a social apophasis about the final form of the good for which we strive, that not knowing for sure is why the conversation and the context within it in which it can happen must remain open, revisable, repentable. They and Pieper echo Pius in seeking to invite their readers into contemplation of the theme of moral unity. They speak of rootedness, of a necessary Christian account of non-utility as the basis of our life together. And they speak of a communicating good, a moral good and a material good, which ties dignified persons to the story of the whole. It is perhaps unsurprising that these are sources to which movements are being drawn in our own unsettled times. But, what, but that connection would be the subject of a different lecture. For this evening, with our more festive focus, I thought I would conclude simply with the following quote, contemplating, as Pius invites us in each of his Christmas messages, the child of Bethlehem and the man of Calvary. From Pius's 1939 message and on your handout. When this heavenly Christ was born, Another prince of peace reigned on the banks of the Tiber and had, with solemn ceremonies, dedicated an Ara Pachis Augusti, whose wonderful but broken remains, buried under the ruins of Rome, have been resurrected in our own days. On that altar, Augustus made sacrifices to gods who do not save. It is permissible, however, to think that the true God and eternal prince of peace who a few years later descended among men, heard the petition of that time for peace, and that the Augustan peace anticipated the supernatural peace, which only he can give, which every true earthly peace must include. That supernatural peace is gained not with steel, but with the wood of the cradle of this infant saviour, and with the wood of his future cross of death, stained with his blood, 
not the blood of hate or rancor, but that of love. <laughs>